All right, here we are. Here we are talking about what were we talking about? Old Man Willow, right? Last that's time? right, that's right. So come on out here, Corey, and let's get this show on the road. Okay, that's right. Because by golly, we're going to get to Tom Bombadil tonight, and there's poetry to discuss. Uh, whenever Tom Bombadil is in the room, there's poetry to discuss. So that's uh, that's that's always fun. So hi, welcome everybody. Good to be back on Crick Hollow. Uh, and uh, t- we've uh, let's see. The last time we were in Crick Hollow, I believe we were in Crick Hollow uh, in our discussion of the story, and so we've uh, proceeded uh, several hours of time in uh, in the the chronology of the story from when the last time I was here. So that's good. That's good. Um, excellent. So let me make sure I'm on my correct uh, Discord channel. Yes, I am. Okay, excellent. Very good. All right. Um. Very good. So, this evening we are uh, um, we're going to be looking at. Oops, I am on the wrong page. Here we are. Um, uh, I'm uh, I, this, so I've titled tonight's class "From Which All the Queerness Comes" because you remember Mary's words when you when they saw the Withywindle from afar, and he said that that was the you know that, that it was the the center of the queerness, you know, the place from which all the queerness comes, as it were. And uh, of course, we have gone finally. You know, they end they end up. They've ended up at the Withywindle, almost in the opposite of the direction they wanted to come, of course, as Mary said. And they have found in the middle of it this huge, enormous, and apparently malevolent willow tree uh, who is uh, trying to, well, eat them or at least entrap them uh, or drown them or whatever. Um, It's not been uh, terrifically fun all the way through for them. So, uh, and this seems to be it, right? This seems to be the heart of things. And we have several things. We'll look at a couple things in the later end of the Old Man Willow passage tonight, uh, which suggest that Old Man Willow is like the epicenter of the forest, right? I mean, we've had this prolonged you know, this prolonged uh, battle between the hobbits and the trees, right? It's been hobbits versus trees from ever since Pippin's question, is it only the trees that are dangerous, right? It's been all about the trees and the hobbits. And so here, this seems to be the granddaddy tree whose song is going out. You know, we, we, we see his song affecting even the trees around and everything. So again, this seems to be the center, right? Uh, but of course, what when we're there and later on this evening, hopefully... We are going to encounter someone whose queerness far transcends the queerness of Old Man Willow, and who also lives by the withy window, and who is in fact actually at the center of the forest uh, in a really interesting kind of uh, turnaround, right? So uh, that's uh, that's where we're headed here tonight. And warming up to that, a uh, couple great comments again from our discussion forum, lotro.mythgard.org. You can see the uh, in the questions for Narnian section uh, of our discussion board. Uh, so Tungo has uh, an interesting point. This is about uh, Sam, and the, specifically Sam saying that you know I, you were dreaming. I expect, right? Remember our discussion of that, and and my own puzzlement, uh, you know, my own lack of confidence in reading that line. What, why is Sam saying that? So, this was Tungle's suggestion. He says, I just had a quick thought on this line. Um, Oppressor Olsen was asking why Sam would show this skepticism that Old Man Willow threw Frodo in the water. One hypothesis is that he's comforting Frodo. I can see this, but I think instead, instead Sam doesn't really believe yet that the tree tried to kill Frodo. Sam realizes that the tree is singing about sleep, and he doesn't trust this. But I don't know if this adds up to him believing that the tree has murderous intent. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have gone off 
off after the ponies at all and would have stayed with his companions to protect them. So I think he's aware that something uncanny is happening, but not the level of danger that they actually face. He seems to be disinclined to believe that a tree would be that malevolent. This may actually be connected with why Sam was able to perceive the singing in the first place. He seems to have more sympathy with Old Man Willow than the other hobbits, which could be due to his general kinship with plants. Maybe also his kinship with the magical-slash-fantastical elves, sir. Um... Great, uh, great point here. Uh, and uh, so, Tungo, I think this is a really interesting suggestion. And you're right. You're right that I was, um, I was taking, I was kind of sort of connecting two dots, right, in Sam's earlier conversation. One, the fact that he was, he, he, he knew that something uncanny, right, that was his word, that, you know, something out of the normal, something, uh, uh, something magical was happening, right? And he knew that the, he recognized that the tree was singing and that the tree was singing about sleep, which means, you know, you know, he found this sudden sleepiness uncanny. So he, 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 he knows that some, that like magic is afoot, right? He knows that the tree is singing and the tree is singing about sleep. So he seems to have drawn the connection this sudden sleepiness, this unnatural sleepiness that has come over us is been, has been put upon us by this tree, Right, and he, and so he, as a as a result, he distrusts the tree. So Tungle, you're right to say that um, I then am kind of making the assumptions from the the assumption from that that like if 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 you you know having established those things right that there's something at least like magic afoot. Um, again, uncanny is a is a vague word, but then again, so is magic in Tolkien's world. So there's something magical afoot. And this tree is doing, you know, this tree, this tree is affecting them deliberately with its song and, and inducing sleepiness in them, you know. So then, I, I, I then went the next step to say, why would you know? Obviously, if he sees that, he must believe that it's malevolent, right? Because you know that's what he means when he says that he distrusts the tree. So I'm very interested in Tungle's suggestion that uh, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to make that assumption. Maybe it's not that. Uh, him now questioning and coming back and saying, oh, yeah, no, there's nothing to see here, nothing un- nothing uncanny is happening after all, but rather it's the malevolence of the will of the tree that uh, that he is questioning or, or failing to assume um, or, or even doubting actively, actually, uh, rather than the uncanniness of the whole situation. Um, and I like that. I mean, another thing that I would add is remember Mary's skepticism about the whether the trees move, right? Um, you know, we talked about the, you know there seemed to be some evidence that suggested that he was um, not necessarily dubious, but definitely kind of reserving judgment on that. He didn't seem to believe that element of the story, right? Um, uh, and you know, as as evidenced by the fact, you know, when he says these trees do shift, right, as if he's like you know, finally accepting this point or uh, acknowledging that that might be true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, as uh, Tungo uh, is live with us here tonight and was just pointing out the, 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 the rest of the line after he says, you were dreaming, I expect, Mr. Frodo. He says, you shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. So Tungo, as you, uh, you know, as we can see in that line, right, he's essentially putting on Frodo the responsibility for falling in the water. The tree didn't, tree didn't knock you in the water, right? The tree wasn't trying to drown you. You fell asleep and fell off. Um, so Tungo, that would be consistent with Sam's acknowledging this strange, bizarre, magical tree is inducing us to fall asleep. Um, 
and you were sitting on a you know on a on a root over the water when you and you fell asleep there so you fell in the water and you know that's that so what it is that he objects to is the idea or resists or disbelieves is the idea of the root twisting around, dumping Frodo in and holding him under the water, even though he himself saw the root on top of Frodo when he came and um, uh, when he came and, and uh, fetched him out. So um, I, I do think that this is an interesting angle. But again, what I was building up to before and kind of forgot my point uh, was um, Mary's... Um, Mary's resistance to the idea of trees in motion. Remember, Mary himself was also never objecting to the idea of the trees being sentient and communicating with each other, right? That they're more alive, more aware, uh, and that they send messages, right? So the idea is that the trees are, are sentient, that they're, oh, that they're aware, uh, that they communicate with each other, that they conspire against the hobbits. Mary was fine with this. What he didn't believe is that they got up and moved, Right? Uh, because that is very untree like. Um, I mean, you can say that like singing magical songs is untree like, but what do you know, right? You can't prove that they don't. Whereas most of the time, trees haven't moved, right? Most of us have not observed that trees move. So, um, you know, we. Uh, it seems Sam. I-, I could believe Sam being more more willing to accept that fact. Um, but Tungle, that's not to say that I necessarily disagree. I think you may be onto something. Um, that he may distrust the tree, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is quick to believe that the tree is attempting to kill them. Um, so, uh, so I do think that that's a good point. Um, as for the point, and, and I'm glad you raised this, Tungle, because a bunch of people were making comments in this direction, both on the discussion board and uh, in the comments last time that I wasn't able to get to, um, the, the bit about Sam being a gardener. Right and sort of Sam's relationship with or familiarity with plants, um, the the place where I think I mean I don't know about you know does Sam have more kind of fellow feeling with plants than the average um, uh, than than the average um, uh, you know Hobbit yeah I I think that's possible um, I wonder if it plays into the fact that he's less startled, you know, that he kind of underreacts, as we talked about, to the fact that, like, oh, yeah, this tree is singing and trying to put us all to sleep. You know, the fact that this tree would be aware and have a personality, right, uh, and uh, perhaps a formidable one and be able to do stuff. Um, You know, maybe it would surprise him less because, you know, he sort of has a different kind of respect for plants. Maybe I could see that. I mean, I'm not 100% convinced of it, but but I could see it. Um, Whereas, again, trees acting, acting unnaturally, right? Not just making sounds and and uh, and having intentions, right? Um, But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't... um, yeah, several uh, a little discussion is going on here on the Discord channel um, that uh, Sam does live in a natural, um, in a smaller scale, right, in a natural antagonistic relationship with some plants, right, uh, just like the farmers and the trees. That you know, we talked about that as a, it's, it's a natural. I mean, farmers and forests are are enemies, right? They are they their their interests are directly opposed to each other, and they're they're always they're almost pretty much always at war. Forests and and farmers. Um, uh, and the same is true with gardeners and weeds, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, he's always 
cutting the lawns and he's uh, always pulling out the weeds, right? So it's not like he's totally pro-plant on all occasions, right? Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, so, so I guess I would say kind of a combination of the two things. A combination of maybe he does... Because um, the thing I am most convinced by, Tungo, is your argument that he wouldn't have gone to fetch the ponies had he believed that they, you know, this tree you know, was like a loose cannon, right? He's going to try to kill them, uh, uh, you know, as its next move. He doesn't seem to suspect that. Uh, and the fact that he walks away from the three of them does seem to support that, that reading. Um, and, and again, I think he's not necessarily convinced that it can actually move its roots because he knows plants well enough to know that they, they don't, they don't do that. Like they don't do that. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Matt, you're right to remind us, of course, that his uh, his respect and affection uh, is uh, very much given to very big old trees like the party tree, um, and uh, I, I, that's a really interesting thing to to remember, uh, Matt. Um, the felling of the party tree and his relationship with old man Willow here, right? You've got two really big. In fact, those two things are interesting parallels, right? The party tree and old man Willow. Um, they've got a lot in common. There's a there's a there's, there's a really interesting parallel to be made between the two of them, right? Um, not to mention, obviously, an anti-parallel, right? But um, but uh, but that would be interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Ethelod was talking. Was says that Mary accepts the attack on the head, so Sam would have to disbelieve Mary, um, and uh, not necessarily because again, like. Weeds attack the vegetable garden all the time, right? Um, forests are always attacking fields. I mean, like if you let them, if you don't do anything, right? If you don't, if you don't cut them back and make a bonfire every once in a while, they will encroach and encroach and encroach and take over your pasture, right? So, um, the idea that the trees once attacked the hedge is different from saying and like they lumbered across the ground and, 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 and came up. Like, you don't have to believe the second in order to accept, you know, the, the first part of that tale, I think. Um, but, um, and yet, Jonathan, you were asking about that uh, earlier, too. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's carry on. Uh, more about Old Man Willow. Um, Steve, our great post here. So certainly there are lots of options. It's a question about what's Old Man Willow's plan. What, what's he going to do with them? I'm really glad you responded to this, Steve, because I really have no idea. Uh, there are lots of options for what Old Man Willow's plan might be, but I think everything Corey postulated in class was rather human in outlook, that he might be trying to eat the hobbits or imprison them for trespassing or otherwise do away with them. All these seem to me centered on a human-slash-hobbit point of view and the preconception that Old Man Willow is a villain. Given the evidence of the surrounding glade being distinctly non-villainous, I'd like to try to look at this question from a more tree-ish point of view. We know that Treebeard and the other Ents, to say nothing of horns and trees, do not experience time in the same way that hobbits, humans, dwarves, or even elves do. To Treebeard anything less than a few hours to say hello is hasty. 
Even if the other trees have told them told him the hobbits are coming, perhaps he's just holding on to them while he figures out what to do with them. But because he experiences time differently, that period of consideration could be a matter of days, months, or years. Clearly that would not end well for the hobbits, but from Old Man Willow's perspective, only a few minutes may have passed while he held them there and thought about what to do next. Or perhaps, since he doesn't comprehend drinking with anything but one's feet... Um... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he sees them not as some other kind of creature, but as some, some sort of immature trees that need to be taught to sit still for a while, like putting children in time out. From this standpoint, the state of the glade starts to make a bit more sense, too, since Old Man Willow is not really a villain if he's just putting the hobbits in time out for being too hasty. <laughs> I love this theory, by the way. I'm a huge fan of this theory. Um, I find the idea that Old Man Willow is just, just disapproves of all of this crazy carrying around, moving around at blistering speeds, and, and wandering about and attempting to leave the forest, uh, and, uh, and that he's going to put them in time out to let them learn to not be hasty uh, I, I this is a this is this is delightful I, I mean it is a, this is a charming charming idea um, I don't think it works honestly uh, I wish I did think it works because I love it I love this idea I want this idea to be true I, I want to make this reading work but I I, I, I can't make this reading work um, I'll give my the reasons that the, the the points the data points that I don't think really fit. Uh, with this theory. Um, but let me... Uh, well, no, I'll come back to that after. I'll go ahead and do that. So, okay. A couple things. First of all, immediately surrounding this moment. Um, uh, around this moment, we have the reaction of Old Man Willow. Now, we only got the first one. We didn't get the second one, right? But the 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 laughter of Old Man Willow. Now, you know, so when he laughs in scorn at Frodo, well, when Frodo's kicking him, right, asking him to let uh, his friends go, um, the tree reacts with laughter. Now you could say maybe this is gentle laughter, right? Maybe this is the patient laughter, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a parent, you know, while his, uh, you know, like 18-month-old kicks his shins or something. Maybe. Maybe. Um it doesn't have that tone. And the reason for this, I think, is that um, the reason that I can't read that tone in that passage is the way it's been set up for the whole chapter to this point. Um, the hobbits have been in an antagonistic relationship with the, the trees have been antagonistic to them very clearly all the way through. And with the hobbits, with the song and the reaction of the trees to the song, um, We've had quite a lot of, of singing battle going on in this chapter already, if you think about it, right? You know, we had Frodo and his song and his song being uh, being suppressed, right? Remember, we talked about the sort of counterspell that the trees uh, make against his song. And then we have their uh, sort of taunting them from the bald hill and then entrapping them down at the withy window. Um, and then the full assault by the song of Old Man Willow. Um, I, I can't, um, uh, I can't think of, uh, that as being any, as being a sort of benevolent, like mistaking them for young trees and benevolently attempting to discipline them. They, they clearly, he clearly does not mistake them for trees. Be, I mean, they're, they're, 
the enemy. They're those that walk about on two feet. Um, that relationship, even even the bonfire glade, right? Because remember, Mary almost didn't find the bonfire glade, right? But then he did find the bonfire glade. And I can't, you know, suddenly they come across a path that, which leads them right to the bonfire glade. And as I say, I'm convinced that pretty much all the paths uh, that they find that move around in those ways that we looked at them moving all the time, um, were our, our tree paths, right? That they're, they're where they go at the beginning is where the trees want them to go. And where the trees want them to go is the bonfire glade and then the bald hill and then the withy window. I think their, their path is determined from beginning to end by the trees. Um, their course, perhaps I should say, to be more accurate. So, um, so yeah, so I, and so the bonfire, the trees remember the bonfire glade. They associate the hobbits with the bonfire glade. Uh, their react, their negative reaction to Frodo's song shows that they get who the hobbits are and that they are displeased with what the hobbits are about. Right. Um, so in the end, I really, um, um, uh, I really don't think that, um, we can see the old man willow is benevolent. Uh, Steve, the primary piece of evidence in support of your reading is what we were looking at last time, the fact that it doesn't look evil, right? And that and that makes the point seem really weak, and I don't think it is. It is true that where we have, you know, dark, corrupted things, usually the area around them is affected by that. Um, and I think it is interesting, and I do think it's important that Old Man Willow does not live in the middle of a blight. He is not himself blighted, and he has not created a blight or corruption that is spread uh, to the trees around him in any visible way. That's a kind of thing that we might expect. Look at the trees in Mirkwood are the, obviously the prime example of this kind of thing. And then when we get past that, we get the desolation of Smaug, and when we get past that, we get Mordor and the lands about Mordor, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that you find around a powerful, dark and corrupted spirit. Um, and we don't find that around Old Man Willow. So I, I, I'm not discounting that at all. Um, but, but again, I can't, I can't fit all the rest of the stuff in with that reading. Um, however, um, I, uh, a good several of you, um, uh, several of you are recalling, um, uh, Eroheb and Matt are both recalling Tom Bombadil's words about Old Man Willow. Um, that's good, but we're not there. Don't get ahead of us now. You know, we'll get to those in two or three weeks. Um, <laughs> so let's uh, let's given uh, given what we've got so far, let's work with what we've got. But however, Steve, one last comment I wanted to make about this because your your first point, your sort of overarching point, um, I don't agree in the end with your specific reading uh, as much as I love it, um, but. But I think your overall point is an excellent one, um, that we do have to be careful to be tree-ish and how we can't project, you know, human perspective onto the tree. And I agree, as we were discussing a bit last time, that whole bathe my feet thing does seem like a tree-ish thought that uh, comes from or, or is associated with Old Man, you know, that, that, that is connected with the thought that Old Man Willow is projecting uh, to them. So... Um, exactly, Matt. Don't be hasty, right? I mean, come on now. Um, uh, Pumpkin Muffin is pretty surprised at the idea that we'd get to them in two or three weeks. Might we be halfway through Chapter 7 in three weeks? Maybe. We might get there. Um, but anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah. Tarloniel says that nature can be dangerous to mortals without being evil or blighted. Um, you know, that's just the way the world is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more like that. Just as the trees of the old forest represent a slightly more active version of the 
traditional antagonism between farmers and forests. Uh, you know, usually you don't see the forest taking quite such an active role in that opposition, but the opposition is itself natural enough and not evil on either side, really. Um, uh, again, they just they they just have different uh, they just have different interests, right? No, they're not on each other's side, to use Treebeard's language, um, but. Um, uh, but anyway, that doesn't make either one of them evil. Uh, so similarly, Old Man Willow could be kind of in that same sort of uh, sort of direction. Um, and uh, and Tom, you're absolutely right that you know they've entered you know in, in in crossing the boundary they have entered fairy and it is perilous, right? That you would find a tree that would that might eat you and destroy you. It doesn't have to be a wicked malevolent tree which is an ally of Sauron's, right? In order for it to be dangerous. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Erocheb, <laughs> I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be good, right? Uh, I, I, I'm not going to talk about Treebeard, not even talk about Tom Bombadil stuff yet. I want to stick to the text as it unfolds. That's the adventure that we're going on here. Of course, after we do this, that's the time then for synthesizing, right? For bringing together all these other points and showing uh, the big patterns. Uh, here, I want to stay. I want to stay close to the uh, um, close to the ground here. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, uh, let's uh, let's carry on. Okay. So we last left them desperately kicking the tree and the tree laughing. Um, I suppose we haven't got an axe among our luggage, Mister Frodo asked Sam. I brought a little hatchet for chopping firewood, said Frodo. That wouldn't be much use. Wait a minute, cried Sam, struck by an idea suggested by firewood. We might do something with fire. We might, said Frodo doubtfully. We might succeed in roasting Pippin alive inside. We might try to hurt or frighten this tree to begin with, said Sam fiercely. If it don't let them go, I'll have it down if I have to gnaw it. He ran to the ponies and before long came back with two tinderboxes and a hatchet. Uh, by the way, I'll have it down if I have to gnaw it is one of, my, one of the lines that I love to quote and often quote. Well, I was going to say out of context, not out of context. That's one of my favorite quotations that I use in any, like, I am determined to, like, accomplish this enormous task no matter what I have to do and howsoever improbable it may seem that I will be able to do it. It's at the, I, when I find myself in that situation... I am wont to quote that line. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Sam is... De- the one point that I would make here about Sam's... Well, of course, Sam's determination is, uh, is, is, is awesome, right? I mean, just, it's neat to see what we learn about Sam's um, character here. Uh, and one small point that I would make in passing, much is made, of course, you know, from the Two Towers and the Return of the King, you know, so for almost two-thirds of the whole story, uh, Sam is alone with Frodo, right? So Sam and Frodo are on their own, and so Sam's determination and protectiveness and his uh, his resolve and all, all those things are, you know, entirely focused on Frodo. And, and so, therefore... You know, much is is generally made of Sam's loyalty and devotion uh, and and love for Frodo, which, of course, perfectly appropriate. Those are very important things. But I think in this passage, it's important to notice that um, this is not about protecting Frodo, 
right? Um, this is just kind of who Sam is, um, no matter what the opponent is and no matter what the situation. It's, it's not just that he is fanatically devoted to protecting Frodo's life. Um, this is who he is in every circumstance with all his friends, right? Um, uh, exactly, JJ. It's just about being selflessly awesome. That's, I, I agree, a fair conclusion uh, to draw about Sam here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, see, Julia, that's interesting. Julia's thinking back to the conversation we had from, oh, I forget whose comment that was, about hobbits being orcish, um, and the, the hewing down of trees and burning them for no reason, uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I talked about that some last time with the whole opposition between farmers and forests things, uh, thing. Um, and it's true. I mean, Julia, on the one hand, you can say, like, look at them burning a tree alive. Look at them torturing this tree, right? But notice what Sam describes, right? Frodo's a little dubious about this whole let's set fire to the tree option, right? Because he's thinking it through and saying, if we were to succeed in setting fire to this tree, this is not actually going to help us rescue Pippin, who's currently encased within this tree, right? So that would probably that would probably not actually pan out. Um, but notice Sam's emphasis. We might try to hurt or frighten this tree to begin with, right? If it don't let them go... I'll have it down if I have to gnaw it. And as much as I love the end of that, right, I'll have it down if I have to gnaw it. The two things that I would emphasize in Sam words, Sam's words here are how he's talking about the tree. Both of them have to do with how he's talking about the tree. Try to hurt or frighten this tree, right? He acknowledges that this tree is sentient. There's no question about that. Right, so he's gonna he's he's gonna interact with the tree. It's clear that the tree's not gonna listen to to begging, right? Um, they're not gonna be able to, you know. So he's he's trying to he's trying to intim- let's frighten the tree. Um, uh, his solution to this is a totally non mechanical solution, if you see what I mean. It's not just like okay, there's this opening and we've got to find we've got to contrive some way to to widen an opening so that we can get them out. This is all about a a sort of a battle of wills between them and the tree in Sam's mind, right? Um, So we have to find a way to affect the personality of the tree, the emotions of the tree, so that it will, you know, and again, if it don't let them go is the other line that I would emphasize in the same way. It's not about getting them out. He doesn't say, we've got to get them out of that tree, as if the tree were inert and the problem were, again, merely a mechanical one of how do we extract them uh, from this uh, difficult position that they are in, right? No, it's about them and the tree. The tree must be compelled, convinced, somehow it has to be made to let them go, right? And Sam is even willing to go all the way, right? He'll kill the tree if that's the only way uh, to, to, to get it to submit to them, right? He'll have it down if he has to. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and yeah, it, the Blue Wizard says he's fiercely protective indeed. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely uh, fierceness here. He's not afraid to hurt the tree. And again, can I say... That's where I see the gardener coming in more than anywhere else. I mean, I, 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 I like the idea, and, I, and to some extent I agree with the idea that Frodo as gardener would be more, like, sympathetic to plants and more, like, you know, kind and gentle with plants because he has a rapport with plants that others don't. But honestly, um, 
that's not necessarily the only outcome of being a gardener, right? If you're a gardener, you are more likely to be easily ruthless with plants. Just like if you are a professional, you know, I mean, if you if you are a, a, a husbandman, right? I mean, if you if you keep animals, right? I mean, if you keep, uh, you know, if you keep the cows and pigs and, 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 and chickens and stuff, you know, and that's your livelihood, uh, you, on the one hand, are, does it mean that you might be more empathic with animals than others who don't work with animals all the time? Yeah, sure, it does mean that. It also means uh, that you will kill them without a second thought, right? Where a person who's less familiar would be squeamish about it, right? Um, so, I mean, I think that's part of the reality of the whole gardener situation, <laughs> right? Um Yes, he tends uh, and cares for plants. He also brutally slaughters any plant uh, that is in the wrong place and getting in the way and do and acting and 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 acting wrong. Right? He's a disciplinarian with plants in the garden, uh, as well as a nurturer of plants in the garden. So he's, uh, um, uh, yeah, Karita exactly as anybody who knows who keeps a garden, uh, uh, killing plants is is a really big percentage of what you do, right? In weeding. Um, Exactly, Galandar. Galandar says gardening is about exerting some control over nature, not about letting it run free. Absolutely, um, and uh, so yeah, so it, so he. I don't think there's any, even shadow of a moral qualm about um, uh, about setting fire to the tree, right? I mean, if the if if it an old tree like this is misbehaving, right? You know, you got to do what you got to do. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lady Shmebulak says she's never thought about that side of it before and somehow she's disturbed. Well, I mean, it's... It's the... It's the reality of things, right? And this seems to me one of the one of the things that's important to keep in mind, right? Again, people have... People make really rosy mental images about hobbits. Um, And hobbits are awesome, but they're not these, like, perfect, empathic little environmental paragons, right? Moral, you know, moral and environmental paragons uh, that people often kind of uh, think and talk of them uh, uh, about. Um... Uh, it's, it's exactly, uh, Gilgalir, they're farmers. That's primarily their farmers. And when, uh, um, when the pro, one of those favorite lines that the, uh, environmental readers of Tolkien like to quote, you know, about the farm, the, the hobbits, uh, having a close relationship with the earth. I think that's what that means. Primarily referring to their agriculture. Um, and again, if you're into agriculture, that it does not, you know, no agriculturalist is a universal supporter of all plant life. You just can't be at all. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, so here's Sam, um, in a, uh, uh, in his very calculated way saying, okay, let's, uh, uh but again, if this is not just like, I'm going to treat this tree like a regular weed, right? He's interacting with this tree like a person. Um, but he's interacting with this tree like a bully. Um, um, 
he's interacting with this tree like a bully, right? I mean, he's uh, as if the tree were a bully, not him, right? Um, he's not going to take this, right? This is, I mean, if you think about it, right? Um, uh, he would challenge a bully. I mean, it's actually an interesting sort of parallel, right? Uh, somebody mentioned about um, Sam needing to still work out, work his way up to Shelob later on, right? But that's another interesting parallel, right? And how cool is that? Uh, first, I had the old man Willow paralleled with the party tree, right? Let's think of Sam's relationship. Think of these two trees, right? And the, 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 the similarities and differences between the party tree and old man Willow, right? What about Old Man Willow and Shelob, right? So it's like, uh, you know, uh, so we've got uh, uh, one remove from the party tree to Shelob here tonight. That's kind of cool. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, so um, uh, he will stand up to bullies, right? He will stand up to uh, to creatures who are who are hurting his friends, right? Um, and uh, And he is not afraid to look this tree in the face, right? Uh, and demand that he's going to, he's going to do what he's got to do, right? To hurt or frighten the tree. It is a tree and he knows what to do with trees, right? He can't, he can't punch it in the face, right? Um, he can't do any of the things that he would normally do, uh, to, you know, uh, like a hobbit that was, uh, that was giving him sauce, right? Um, but he's not going to take any sauce from this tree either. Uh, so he's going to, but he's, but he's going to react like a gardener, right? Okay. Let's, um, there's a tree that's, Causing a problem, um, I've got ac- I've got an axe and I've got fire. Let's do this tree, right? That's 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 Frodo's response. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Quickly, they gathered dry grass and leaves and bits of bark and made a pile of broken twigs and chopped sticks. These they heaped against the trunk on the far side of the tree from the prisoners. As soon as Sam had struck a spark into the tinder, it kindled the dry grass and a flurry of flame and smoke went up. The twigs crackled. Little fingers of fire licked against the dry, scored rind of the ancient tree and scorched it. A tremor ran through the whole willow. The leaves seemed to hiss above their heads with a sound of pain and anger. A loud scream came from Mary, and from far inside the tree they heard Pippin give a muffled yell. Um, I have, uh, no idea what, um, happened to Pippin. Like what the, I must have pinched or compressed him in some way, right? Um, Sam was trying to get a reaction out of the tree, right? And he succeeded. Notice the tree hasn't caught fire. Um, I mean, that's really kind of improbable, actually, that they would ignite the tree with, you know, a little pile of uh, bark and tinder. Um, all they've done is scorched the tree. You know, the flames have licked up against it and scorched it. So they've turned a little bit of its bark a little bit black, right? That's all they've accomplished at this point. Um, but it's enough. The tree does feel pain, but its reaction is not fear, right? Its reaction uh, is anger, pain and anger. Um, and uh, I like the uh, um, sort of the correspondence, the, um, the, the sounds, right? The fire, uh, the twigs are crackling in their fire. Um, and... Uh, the response is that the leaves up above hiss, right? Both of them are like wood sounds, right? We've got uh, little tree sounds on both sides, um, but this is a sound which is which is not an echo. So clearly, 
Is the tree moving? Yes, the tree is moving. I was laughing before. Uh, it's angry now. And it immediately... Um, uh, it immediately uh, uh, hurts. It inflicts pain upon Mary and Pippin. Now, coming back to the tree-ish thing, um, I think it's pretty clear from that fact. It understands, right? It... I, I, I agree that we should think we should try to think treeish thoughts if we're trying to uh, um, uh, if we're trying to understand um, uh, what the tree is thinking and what its motivations are. We do need to think treeishly. Um, but again, I see I can't see I can't believe that it is just that the tree is just unaware of the fact that the hobbits are different that it, that it mistakes them for trees um, because this is not. It's it knows like they're soft and weak, right? It can pinch them and it hurts them in ways that it would not hurt wood, right? It would not hurt a tree, um, and uh, and even the fact that it is absorbing them in that way, that it's taking them inside it and encasing them, um, is not. Um, I, I, I can't I can't see it it acting that way towards a, another tree. Like in, again, in discipline towards a. A, a, a neighbor tree, exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Julia suggesting that the, uh, the use of fire probably reminds Old Man Willow of the Bonfire Glade Massacre. Yeah, no, I'm sure it does. Um, it's not just, and that, I think that's why the reaction is anger, not fear, right? Um, uh, this is, You've got to think that this is a confirmation, right? Um, the trees have sort of declared war on these hobbits from the minute they entered the forest. And Frodo's song was suggestive, and this seems to be the final confirmation, right? See, look, it was right. It was right to take action against these creatures. Look how dangerous they are. Look how reckless they are. Um, here they are starting fires again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and uh, Sharon, you're right. Fire is a distinctly human tool of control over nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Put it out! Put it out! cried Mary. He'll squeeze me in two if you don't. He says so. Who? What? shouted Frodo, rushing round to the other side of the tree. Put it out! Put it out! begged Mary. The branches of the willow began to sway violently. There was a sound as of a wind rising and spreading outwards to the branches of all the other trees round about, as though they had dropped a stone into the quiet slumber of the river valley, and set up ripples of anger that ran out over the whole forest. Sam kicked at the little fire and stamped out the sparks. But Frodo, without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for, ran along the path, crying, Help! 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 It seemed to him that he could hardly hear the sound of his own shrill voice. It was blown away from him by the willow wind and drowned in a clamor of leaves. As soon as the words left his mouth, he felt desperate, lost and witless. Um, yeah, Brandon, that's a remarkable line, isn't it? Brandon says that Frodo doesn't seem to get that it's the tree doing these things. Yeah, um, and... Here, you, we might say, okay, hang on now. It was hard enough to understand Sam's skepticism, right? Um, Frodo 
at least was the one saying, like, knowing that the tree did in fact move and tip him over, why would he be questioning? And the tree is obviously drawing Mary inside, right? Mary wasn't lying like that before. It's been moved by the tree. So you'd think they have plenty of empirical evidence to believe that it's the tree that they're dealing with here, right? Um, but, uh, but I think, um, uh, I think that the, 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 how I understand this, because again, that kind of skepticism that he doesn't understand that it's the tree doesn't make any sense to me at all in this context. Um, how I read that is the speech, right? Um, Mary has, I mean, notice the implications of He'll squeeze me, put it out, he'll squeeze me in two if you don't, he says so. Okay? Mary is saying, the tree is talking to me. And the tree has communicated to me a series of things, right? This is, this is a, this, you know, so, uh, your friends have lit a fire, right? They must put out the fire. If they don't put out the fire, I'm going to squeeze you in two. Right? Those, those, those things have all been... Now, I don't know how exactly. We don't get this from Mary's point of view, right? I don't know. I mean, is, does he, how does that work? I don't, does he hear dialogue, right? Uh, d- is, it, d- is it sort of a mental impression? Sam can tell that the tree is singing about... You know, hark, hark now it's singing about sleep, right? Um, the hark suggests that he, he actually... He can hear it, right? He can hear the song, and he I, somehow... Identify, you know, can tell that it's singing about sleep. Um, uh, so, yeah, exa- uh, Tom thinks that it's the pronoun that's throwing um, that's throwing Frodo. Um, he is a person, not a thing. Um, uh, and uh, you know, so when he says, he'll squeeze me into, he says so. Um, who is Frodo's immediate response? Um, you know, again, and who, what? Uh, so it's, you know, the, the what seems to be Frodo extending this to be like, wait, the tree's talking to you? Um, and remember, Frodo didn't hear the song. Uh, he felt the fact of the tree's operation. Remember, he felt, you know, sleep raining down on his head and coming up through his feet from the ground. And, um, you know, and he heard a kind of song, but it's, you know, he did not have that same moment like Sam did where he was like, this tree is singing. Right. Um, so he seems to be, um, um, uh, he seems to be confused, right. At the very least, uh, about the, the whole speech thing. And I too find it really interesting. Um, really interesting that he has spoken and communicated with Mary as explicitly, as clearly as that. Um, and, uh, you know, so Frodo's asking for an explanation. Who talk to you. Um, which, again, another thing, by the way, that that seemed to suggest is that perhaps Frodo thinks that there's some... Maybe the maybe the willow is only a tool. Maybe it's not the willow. Maybe the willow isn't the, uh, isn't the, the kingpin here. Maybe, maybe, maybe there is something else behind it, right? Maybe the, the tree is only an instrument for some other creature, right? Um, and I think that that might also be what Frodo is saying, like, is, is the, you know... Uh, what are we talking about here? Who 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 told you this? Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Pontine, I don't know. Pontine asks, "Is the tree only talking to Mary, and 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 only he can hear him?" Frodo and Sam clearly can't hear him. Can Pippin hear him? Uh, maybe. I mean, we don't know. Pippin's completely encased, right? So, um, uh, 
And again, that's another thing. He, the old man Willow, right, has communicated this message to Mary because Mary's voice can still be heard uh, because the crack is still open, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Erocheb is reminded of the of Sauron's message to Pippin through the uh, through the uh, the Palantir. Another really interesting point of comparison, right? So, Old Man Willow and Sauron. See, look, we got all these uh, all these parallels to explore here. Um, uh, Julius thinking that uh, he almost seems like a hasty tree. Um, yeah, well, you know, reacting to fire is. Uh, uh, natural, right? Getting angry when fire is set to you, uh, even the slowest ant seems to respond that way, right? Um, so there's there's not being hasty, and, and, and then there's, you know, yeah, they're not going to be sitting around and letting themselves be destroyed. Um, but, um, but here's another element of this that interests me. If Old Man Willow can talk, that I don't find too strange under the circumstances. Why doesn't he just talk to Frodo and Sam? Why does he need Mary uh, to speak for them? Why does he talk to Mary and say, tell your friends to put it out or I'll squeeze you in half? Right? Why doesn't he just speak to Sam and Frodo and say, put it out or I'm going to squeeze your friend in half? Right? Why not? Um, And I can only think it must be because they're inside him. Like, Mary's got his head in, right? And Pippin's entirely in. Um, and, uh, I think that he, um, it, 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 perhaps, therefore, there's some kind of connection between him and the hobbits, you know, whose head are inside the tree that he can communicate with them, that he can't, in ways that he can't communicate with, with, uh, with Frodo and Sam, um, which then leads us to some interesting speculations, right? Uh, uh from Twitter, and I'm sorry, I, I've missed some of your comments before, um, says that Merry and Pippin are totally within his power. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, um, yeah, I, uh, um, as I say, though, it does lead me to some interesting speculations about what he's going to do with them, right? Um, the fact that he can talk with them and they can hear his voice when they're inside him, right? When they're inside his trunk is interesting. Um, they have a different relationship with the tree, right? Once they're inside. Um, so I don't really know. Um, several of you are continue really want, and I totally understand this, um, uh, yeah, no, Cecilia's thinking of this in terms of like, well, they're more likely to listen if Mary says it. So maybe it's just, so Cecilia, you're suggesting maybe it's just like expedient, right? That he thinks they will, they will, he will get their attention better if the word comes through Mary's screams, right? Uh, than just them hearing a voice telling them directly. That's possible. It could be a calculation on his part. Um, it certainly is a retaliation, and what's more, think how direct a retaliation it is. What was Sam trying to do, right? To hurt or frighten this tree, right? So that it will do what they want, what they want him to do, 
right? So what does he do in response? He both hurts and frightens Mary, right? In order, and then uses Mary and Mary's voice in order to get them to do what he wants, which is put out the fire, right? Um, so that's kind of interesting too, you know, that he's kind of retaliating in the same, uh, in the same kind of way. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I still want to, I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately, I'm, I'm trying to think I'm avoiding conclusions. I'm deliberately holding off on conclusions about Old Man Willow because we are going to get more data about him, right? I do want to wait until that time within the next month or so when we get to Tom Bombadil's speech on this subject, right? When he's talking about Old Man and tells us about Old, tells the Hobbits and us about Old Man Willow. Um, so I want to use Tom's information. What I'm resisting doing is a lot of you have been asking, they want to talk about who horns or like, is he an evil Maya in the shape of a tree or is he, or is he like an ant or a who horn? Uh, um, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, and the reason I'm not going to answer that question is because we don't have, we, we have no idea. We have no data. For that yet. I mean, it's really hard for us to draw that conclusion right now. Um, so I want to wait. I want to wait until we see what we see. I'm not going to wait until we get all the way to the two towers, but um, uh, but I really want to want to see what we're given here uh, in this uh, in this in this context. Um, Ethelon asks, "How old is Old Man Willow?" Ancient, we're told. We don't know any more than that, but he's got to be centuries old. Um, uh, it's entirely possible that he's like a thousand years old. That would be easy to believe. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. All right. Let's keep going. Oh, wait, no. I want to look at Frodo. Look, look at what happens to Frodo there again at the end. This is one of those things that I think I read over every time. I, 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 I just read past it. I didn't notice it. Almost every time I've read this book before. What happens when Frodo cries for help? It seemed to him that he could hardly hear the sound of his own shrill voice. It was blown away from him by the willow wind and drowned in a clamor of leaves as soon as the words left his mouth, just like his song. This is not... I think I had always read that, you know, very quickly. never really paid much attention to it because I had kind of just read it as like a description of Frodo's panic. Right. How helpless he feels is that even just in, you know, he could do nothing except shout for help and there's nobody to whom to shout for help. And even like as soon as the words leave his mouth, it's like they don't even, you know, they're just drowned right away. You know, they just die. He, you know, it doesn't even do any good. Right. I'd always read that again. It's merely a description of Frodo's own feelings of helplessness. But having read through this chapter a good deal more carefully this time. No, this fits the pattern. We've seen this several times. We've seen this kind of oppression of his spirits and suppression of his words happen before. It happened at the end of his song, right? Um, this is a full-out assault by the tree. The old man Willow sang and sang the sleepiness, right? Uh, 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 water and sleep, right? That was his initial song. Now, uh, now he's pushing it in a different direction. Now what he's singing is like the counter song 
to Frodo's original song, right? Um, and his his voice, his very voice is drowned out. Um, he felt desperate, lost, and witness, lost and witless. And Brandon asks the excellent question: So why does Frodo call for help? A question with no answer, but an obvious question to be asked. The, the text demands that we ask. It doesn't give us an answer, but it demands that we ask the question, right? Frodo, without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for, ran along the path crying, help, 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 right? So our attention is drawn to the fact that he's doing this. He, this is some kind of impulse that he doesn't understand. This is not a calculation on Frodo's part, right? Um, he's just doing it, right? He's just crying out um, for help, not no, with no plan, and uh, with no real rationale behind it. Um, suddenly he stopped. There was an answer, or so he thought, but it seemed to come from behind him, away down the path further back in the forest. So Frodo runs along the path in the direction they were headed. Remember Mary's like this let's follow this east, right? And eventually we'll get to the end of the we'll get to the end of the forest, right? Um so th- so he runs off in that direction east. The voice comes from behind him. Um and that seems to me significant uh because um it sh- it suggests that it doesn't insist that the that the thing is 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 coming in response to him, right? You know, he's not calling in this direction and then hearing a voice coming toward him. Um, he uh, um, he calls and then he hears something coming up behind him. Okay, so we'll see what we make of that. But that's the interesting fact here to begin with. Um, he turned around and listened. And soon there could be no doubt. Someone was singing a song. A deep, glad voice was singing carelessly and happily, but it was singing nonsense. Hey, doll, merry doll, ring-a-dong, dillo. Ring-a-dong, hop-along, foul-lal the willow. Tom-bom, jolly-tom, tom-bom-badillo. Half hopeful and half afraid of some new danger, Frodo and Sam now both stood still. Suddenly, out of a long string of nonsense words, or so they seemed, the voice rose up loud and clear and burst into this song. And we'll look at the song in a second. Um, so here is the guy we've been waiting to meet for a while. Uh, we've gotten lots of singing, right? Frodo singing, the tree singing. Now, of course some other guy is coming up the path singing. Um, First of all, let's not forget that in this context, what are our expectations, right? We know who this is, and we've all been waiting for Tom Bombadil for weeks, right? So so as soon as we get to this moment, we're like, hooray, it's Tom Bombadil. Frodo is not, hooray, it's Tom Bombadil. He has no idea, right? So a a voice is coming from the from behind him, 
from deeper into the forest, from deeper at the heart of the forest and down the withy window. Uh, something is coming up behind them as if it were like tracking or pursuing them. I mean, this is a scary situation, right? And they're already panicked. And here comes something. And it's singing. Which, okay, like normally, if you heard somebody singing in the woods, you might immediately be like, oh, well, yeah, sure. That's okay. Like weird. But, um, uh, but you know, not dangerous unless they're crazy. Um, but uh, that, that, the, under the, in the context, right? Somebody else singing, that's potentially dangerous, right? Old Man Willow's been singing, and it's not been very good. There's been some singing conflict already. Uh, what's this guy, right? And what's this? So there's another singer coming up the path from behind. Again, potentially scary. Um, but at the same time, he was just calling for help, and here is somebody, when they didn't know that there was somebody. Um even though, of course, if they had known there was somebody, they'd probably have been scared, right? Because who would live in the middle of the old forest? Pippin's believing all the stories about it, right? Even perhaps the ones that Fatty's old nurse told him. What would Fatty's old nurse tell them, right? I mean, if they were to tell Fatty's nurse that there was like somebody coming up from the center, you know, up the path behind them from the center of the forest singing, I'm sure she'd have an explanation for that. Um, and, uh, but the immediate cue that we get. He's singing a song. A deep glad voice singing carelessly and happily. So all of a sudden we get like overwhelmed with all of these positive uh, adjectives and adverbs. Right? Um, he, his voice is a glad voice singing happily but also carelessly. And carelessness in the middle of this moment. Right? This moment of panic and you know, mortal strife between them and Old Man Willow, somebody just singing carelessly um, is uh, is a really interesting tone to set, right? And nonsense, right? Singing nonsense. Um, hey doll, merry doll, ring-a-dong dillo is the first line that he sings. And now we're going to talk about the metrical form in the next, when we get his full song. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna get too distracted with that right now. Um, but let's look at the. Let's look at. I always say when you read the poem, the first thing to do is to uh, figure out the plot. Right. Make sure you're following the syntax and and uh, uh, and understanding what it says. Right. So let's uh, let's do that. Hey doll, merry doll, ring a dong dillo. Now, ring a dong, hop along. Fallal the willow. What on earth does this mean, right? It's singing nonsense. So we're not we're not led to expect that it means very much, right? But it also doesn't mean nothing, right? We do we can see some things in here. Now this is more, this song is a more ridiculous song than the Fallalalali song, right? The Tralalalali and and all that stuff. You know, the Fallalalali and Tralalalali that we get in the Hobbit in chapter three, right, with the elves of Rivendell. Um, this is more ridiculous even than that song. Um, apart from the Tralalalali lines, the rest of them were at least comprehensible English, even if they seemed a little odd, right? Um, what, um, what do we hear? What do we see? What do we, what do we take from this?
Julia says, could it be a walking song, a way to keep time with steps? I think so. Though you'll notice, Julia, it doesn't sound like the other ones, right? Um, the Hobbit walking songs were in iambic tetrameter, and we talked about the regularity of the beat of the walking song that, you know, you can hear it. Bum, 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 We're walking, we're walking, right? Especially remember when the three of them were walking in step, and you can really hear it then. This doesn't sound like that, right? It does not sound like a song that hobbits would sing when they're walking in step down the path, right? Um Hey doll, merry doll, hey doll, merry doll, ring a dong, dillo, ring a dong, hop along, foul al the willow. If he is walking along to this song, he's walking rather oddly, which of course we'll see that he is, right? So that's cool. Uh, so hang on to that, Julia, because I think you're clearly onto something there. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Erokeb says this is a way to uh, a way to uh, 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 sort of dance rather than to, to, to keep dancing rather than to keep uh, step. Uh, notice the enforced pauses as well as the beats. Yes, it proceeds much more irregularly. It has a it has a a perceptible rhythm, right? Um, but it does it's not smooth and flowing. Um, Yeah, exactly, Sharon. It's also, it's not careless as in incautious, it's careless as in carefree, absolutely. And we can see that. Um, but what, what are the first two lines, right? In the first two lines, what are the words that make sense? They're not all nonsense words, right? In fact, most of them are not. Hey, good. Yeah, so nonsense words are actually only a couple, right? Doll, D-O-L, doesn't look to be the English word doll. Oh, I'm I'm blanking on this. If you're with us live, please remind me. Somebody posted on the discussion board a really cool point, uh, which is that um, Tom Bombadil was in part informed by uh, um, Priscilla had a doll. Um, which they named Tom Bombadil. And he was uh, partly the... It was, again, one of those things, like one of another one of those examples of Tolkien writing something to please his children. Not this, the poem. The Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem, originally. Um, so it was a, like, your doll comes to life and has adventures uh, kind of poem, initially. Um, which is uh, exactly like Roverandom, Julia. Exactly. Um, um, uh, and, of course, The Hobbit to some extent. But anyway... Oh, Tungo, that was you. Great. Um, uh, so Tungo was asking, like, is it a coincidence, right, that, uh, it, you know, if Tom, Bom- Tom Bombadil was originally Priscilla's doll, uh, Tolkien's daughter Priscilla, uh, that he, he says the word doll all the time in his songs. Um, I, I'm resistant to that reading um, because that doesn't strike me as a very Tolkienian kind of wordplay. Um, but I love the idea. Um, you know, hey, doll, <laughs> like, you know, says the doll. Um, but um, I, but it's hard to totally dismiss it as a coincidence either, so I'm not really sure what to say about it in the end. But, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Julia points out that doll means hill 
in Cinderin. Right. See, that's more the kind of thing that I, um, I, I could more readily believe, Julia, that Tom Bombadil was saying a Cinderin word, which sounds like uh, nonsense to them. And that he was playing on this, the, Tolkien is playing on the Cinderin word in some way, and like is not even thinking of the English word D O L L. Like that, that's just like not even in Tolkien's mind when he says that, because um, to him the word dull means hill, because he's thinking in Cinderin. Uh, I can totally, um, I can totally believe that that he would that he would do that he would not think about D-O-L-L at all. I can more easily believe that than I can believe that he's making a joke about Priscilla's doll there. But um anyway. Um so uh okay. But back to the nonsense word. So let's accept for now doll is a nonsense word, just for argument's sake, right? Dillo that's I I would accept that also as a nonsense word. Um Falal right that brings me to four. The rest of them aren't nonsense words. Not really, right? Um, hey! It's interesting to me that he starts with hey. Um, hey is usually a thing that you say to get somebody's attention, right? Um, he, so it's interesting that he starts with that, right? Um, maybe hey doll in Tom Bombadil's uh, <laughs> so Lincoln says, so we're to understand he's greeting the, the bald hill. Hello, hill. <laughs> hey, doll. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not exact. Tony, that is precisely where I was going. I think it's quite likely that Hey Doll is Tom Bombadil's version of what? The Anglo-Saxon word. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, it has that same, that same kind of effect. Um, uh, you exactly anticipated where I was going with that, Tony. Um, so, Hey Doll, Mary Doll. So, the word Mary is immediately in there. We're told that his voice is glad and he's singing happily, and the th- the third word of his song is the word merry, right, for happiness. So like, there is, his, his song isn't just merry. He's singing about merriment, right? Not in a way that we can understand. I mean, what does merry doll mean? We don't really know, but he's singing about merriment, right? Um, if it's being just thrown out there as a nonsense syllable, it's a very conspicuous one, right? Ring-a-dong dillo. Ring-a-dong, I don't accept any one of those as, as, uh, as nonsense words, right? Ring, of course, is about bells. And dong is, uh, I, that seems onomatopoetic, right? I mean, it's the description of the sound a bell makes when you ring it. Uh, so ring-a-dong uh, is a, this is a, this is a, that's a both about ringing a bell and then imitating the sound of the bell. Uh, and again, ring-a-dong is, of course, when you, if you ring a bell once, you're likely to ring it twice, right? Uh, ring-a-dong, hop along. Here he's describing what he's doing. We're gonna, learning that hopping is exactly one of the, one of the activities that he is currently uh, uh, undertaking. So again, is that, does it make sense? Is it clear what he's conveying? No, but it's not, not the words aren't nonsense, right? Falal the willow. Um, I don't know what falal means, um, but he alludes to the willow. Now, does this mean that he uh, knows that the willow is 
trapping the hobbits and he's coming to their rescue. He is about to tell us no. Well, okay. In a couple of weeks, he'll tell us no. But, uh, but and I don't see any reason to doubt Tom's words here. Uh, there. Not here. There. Um, I don't think, I certainly don't think that that snippet from that line proves that he knows what's going on. It only shows that he knows he's coming, he's approaching Old Man Willow, because his path goes right by Old Man Willow, right? And remember, as much as Old Man Willow was drawing them to him, right, he is at the center of the web, and he's been drawing them to him all the way along, yes, but they've been following Tom Bombadil's path. Remember, we saw that. This is not a tree path. This is Tom Bombadil's path. Um, this is clearly a path made by a person, as we saw laying logs and brush over uh, over uh, wet parts, right? Um, this is a human path, or, you know, like a, this is a people path, let me say. Um, and now we know whose path it is, because here's the guy coming down it, right? Um, so this is Tom, ba- Tom Bombadil's path runs right under the right next to the willow. Why? Because he's careless, right? It doesn't bother him, right? He's obviously not afraid of it. Um, But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, So he's clearly made this, uh, made this uh, path. Falau, Falau kind of sounds to me like a, I don't know. I don't know um, if this is about his... Um, um, I don't know if this is about what he is... Okay. I'm not sure of the syntax of that. Foul the willow. Um, and it might seem silly for me to be trying to parse out Tom Bombadil's syntax. <laughs> Clearly this is not syntactical in a traditional sense, right? But... Ring-a-dong, ring-a-dong, hop-along. There is syntax there. It's not a sentence, right? But there's syntax there. Uh, the talk, the, the the image of ringing the bell twice, right? Hop-along. Those are two words which make sense syntactically in English. Foul-lal the willow. Um, is that an action that is done to the willow? Is this a thing that he's saying to the willow? Um... I don't again. I don't know what falal is. I I accepted those as nonsense words, uh, so I have no idea what it is he's saying to the willow or about the willow or telling the willow to do. It could be any one of those things, right? But he seems to be addressing the willow, um, acknowledging the willow, thinking about the willow. In any case, right? As of course, why shouldn't he? Because he's approaching the willow as he comes down the path. And if there's anything that that this song seems to be doing, it seems to be about itself, right? Merriment and hopping along. But notice, not ringing bells, right? Now, Mary, I I think that's a really great point. Uh, if anything, uh, Mary thinks it's making fun of the willow, right? Or always making light of it. Um, I can totally believe that. Um. You know, to uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe you would you know we could translate falal in some way like uh, like you know you know uh, pishtosh or you know uh, fui to the willow or something like that. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Harnuth also says a similar thing that it feels kind of mocking or dismissive as if he's uh, poking fun of old man Willow's self-importance. That's a really neat way to think about it. Um, 
you can't think that uh, no matter what Falau translates to, that old man Will is going to be particularly flattered by or you know by being included in this uh, in this line of this song, right? Um, oh, but anyway, the point I was I was just going to make before I got distracted by that. Um, it's not true. That notice that we've kind of proven here. Tom Bombadil is not just singing about what he's doing, right? It's tempting to think of it that way or to think of it that way exclusively, but it's not. That's not. We can because he he's, he doesn't have a bell. Does he have a bell? He doesn't have a bell. He's not ringing a bell, right? Um, and again, that that might, <laughs> Cecilia's speculating that Tom Bombadil might be dancing the Springle Ring. Um, uh, I don't know, but he, I bet he'd be pretty good at the Springle Ring. Um, but um, uh, anyway, I um, I don't want to make too much of the ring a dong, but it does come in twice, right? And to me, it's it, that's interesting, right? It's interesting because he's making a bell sound with the dong, right? Uh, He's, so he's singing about bells, but he's not ringing a bell at the time. Um, and I just think that might be kind of important for us to remember uh, as we move forward. Um, yeah. Um, Tom Bomb Jolly Tom Tom Bombadillo. Now, uh, 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 Arthur was just pointing out that um, he's leaning towards the interpretation that he really just wanted to rhyme things with his name. Uh and wanted his name to finish the verse, uh, and that's why he uh, talks about the willow and can't resist the the joke of uh, poking fun at old man Willow by rhyming uh, uh, by rhyming just using it as a rhyme word with his name. Um, I hear that, yeah, but of, and I, mean, I think that's a fine reading. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. It's in, so maybe uh, then Arthur. The suggestion would be that Falal is simply nonsense. Doesn't ju- it's not that it means something that we don't understand. It just doesn't mean anything. Um, and he just throws the willow in there at the end as a piece of sort of um, jesting disrespect. Right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, several of you are arguing that he could be wearing jingle bells, like he could be uh, a Morris dancer. Um Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> Can't rule it out. Um, I don't think there's ever any reference to any of his any bells, right? Besides which, I don't believe it. Because it's not jingle bells. Because jingle bells... Have you ever heard a jingle bell that, that makes the sound dong, right? No. There are bells that make that sound, but not little jingle bells, right? Uh, uh, ring-a-ling, yes. Uh, ring-a-dong, no. That's a bigger bell. Right, um, a handbell can make a dong sound, right? Uh, but not a, uh, but not a jingle bell. So no, even if he were wearing bells on his clothes, it wouldn't do it for me. Uh, he would have to be like holding and waving a bell for it to really be, uh, um, like, uh, for it for for him to be doing what he's singing about. Um, I don't think Tom Bombadil's house has a bell tower, uh, JJ, but. Uh, but again, I, that would be that. That would certainly be a dong sound. Absolutely, um, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, okay. Anyway, 
a couple of you were asking now I bet you guys I bet that you didn't think that even I would spend this much time focusing on these three lines from doesn't there doesn't at first it doesn't seem like there's enough to 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 look at right and I will make another confession to you I didn't plan to spend this much time thinking about them but once you look at them it's really interesting because another question that several of you were asking was um you know, did this, uh, Tom, I think you worded it this way, you know, did, uh, did Tom Bombadil teach the tra la la elves, you know, their technique? Um, no, no, I don't think he did. Um, cause I think it's very different. The elves song is ridiculous, but it's not nonsense. Um, there's very, very little nonsense at all in the elves song. Um, again, there's ridiculousness cause it's ridiculous to sing about like, you know, the river is flowing. Um, you know, oh, what are you seeking? Oh, where are you going? Your ponies need shoeing. The river is flowing. Oh, tra la la here down in the valley. Ha-ha, right? That's not nonsense. It's silly, but it's not nonsense, right? Um, uh, asking questions and then making observations about random, not obviously interesting facts, Right? that your ponies need shoeing and that the river happens to be flowing at the time, right? That's not nonsense. It's silly, but it's not nonsense. Uh, and they use no nonsense words. I don't count tra la la as a nonsense word because there it's cl- this, that, that's clearly just syllables, right? And you can, by the fact that it's repeated, you can tell there's no attempt to convey anything there. Whereas notice the debate that we're having about fa la the willow, right? It sounds like it could mean something. Um, whereas no one's going to hear tra la la and mistake it as anything but, you know, just a, just, just a chorus, right? Just syllables uh, use, uh, random syllables used to make up a rhythm, right? Uh, and the ha-ha as laughter. Um, uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I, 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 that... Tom's song is different. Very different. Um in the sense that it uses nonsense words, and in its relationship with syntax, right? Uh, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like Tom Bombadil's poetry and English syntax, you know, their relationship is clearly, it's complicated, right? There's syntax involved, but it's not just, uh, it's not just using it normally. Um, uh, but, um, anyway, yeah, okay, so, um, um, Well, Arrowhead is suggesting perhaps it's uh, the in thinking about ring a dong. Perhaps it's not, uh, you know, bells aren't the only thing that ring. Voices can ring out too. Maybe you know he's talking about his deep, glad voice and his own singing. It's possible, but I still think that the word ring works that way, um, but not the word dong, right? I get that's a particularly bell sound, right? I mean, it's I can't get away from a physical bell. Uh, when I hear the word dong, right, that, like that, right? Um, but, um, yeah, okay. Um, but what the song does do, and what it clearly builds up to, as we've been saying, is his name, right? We've been focusing on the first two lines. The third line is just his name. Tom Bomb Jolly Tom Tom Bombadillo. So what is he doing? stating his name. He is stating his name as he walks down the path. Um, 
Why would he do that? What's he doing? Is there any... Uh, does this make any sense in context? Um, and again, one reaction to that that you might have might be, but Tom Bombadil sings his own name all the time. Yeah, that's true. But we haven't seen him do it yet. This is the first time we've ever heard him do it, right? Uh, so what? how does it fit in with what we see in this moment? Um, uh, Lady Shmebiwak, I agree. I think that uh, Tom Bombadil uh, would have really enjoyed um, knowing about armadillos had he been to Texas. Because, I mean... If there was ever a word which is tailor-made for Tom Bombadil, it's the word armadillo, right? Uh, the combination of the perfect rhyme, right? And the f- frankly ridiculous animal, right? At least ridiculous looking. Uh, anyway, you know, clearly. Um, uh, yeah, and Amarillo, <laughs> exactly. He'd been all over Texas, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, so Mungley asks, is he introducing himself that's one thing that suggests itself, especially going along with the hay at the beginning, right? Um, that he could be addressing them and telling them who he is. Um, that, of course, assumes he knows the there, which later on he's going to deny, um, possibly. But, um, uh, but anyway, I, I, but, so I'm not, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, the other thing, that I think that we have to remember the one we don't yet know for sure whether he sees them or hears them. He's just a voice in the distance, right? Does he know they're there? We're not really sure, but, um, we do know one thing for sure. He's approaching old man Willow. And we also know for sure that he knows he's approaching old man Willow and that he's thinking about approaching old man Willow. And we know this because he mentions the Willow in the song, right? So why would he sing a verse uh, that culminates in his own name? Why would he be stating his own name uh, at this moment, right now? Names are important. Keep an, I mean, we'll come back to this later on, and Tom Bombadil is going to make a big deal of this. Names are important. Um... Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, I think he's asserting himself. One, at least one of the things that he's doing is asserting himself. Um, we know, because we've already read it, right, Tom Bombadil does not have a problem with Old Man Willow, right? Tom Bombadil has authority over Old Man Willow. Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have to assert that authority over Old Man Willow. Um, if we know the background, right, if we know the, uh, if we know the poem, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, um, in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, Old Man Willow traps Tom. Um, it's not Merry or Pippin. It's Tom Bombadil himself who goes to sleep with his back up against the tree, and old man Willow takes him in, and Tom Bombadil makes him let, it, makes him, let him go, um, using many of the same words that he's going to use when he makes old man Willow let the hobbits go. Um, 
so, um, anyway, uh, there's conflict between the two of them. That's, uh, that's traditional. Um, the conflict between the two of them. Um, he may have authority. We'll see that he does have authority. But he's asserting. I think one of the things that he's doing here is asserting that authority. Um, he is who he is, right? Uh, and he is stating his name. He is, uh, at the very least, reminding Old Man Willow as he approaches him. Um, yeah. Um, now that's interesting. Karita uh, was saying, if names are so important, how come someone as awesomely powerful and magical as Tom is such a common name? Uh, and Lady Shmebiwak says uh, she doesn't think Tom would want a name any grander uh, than he has. Um, no, but I would also say I'm not sure it's necessarily well, the Tom part might sound common, but um, uh, of course, as Gilgalier says, it's it's a name he's been given, right? Um, he wasn't always called that. Um, I suspect that Tom Bombadil is a name that's given to him by hobbits. Um, Tom is a very hobbit nickname. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, he's... Um, um, you know, is that his real name? Nah, it's not his real name, but he uses it, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Julia says it's like what Farmer Maggot calls him when he comes to visit. Yeah, basically, right? Um, so why is he calling himself that here, now? We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Uh, we will get more data on the question of to what extent is Tom aware of the hobbits here as he comes along? Um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, now, we spent that long <laughs> talking about these first three lines. So, you can understand my hesitation to begin the next slide, <laughs> which is a very much longer poem. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this poem, and then we're going to come back to it next time. And your assignment in this next week, think about all the discussion we had about those first three lines we see from Tom Bombadil. And your assignment for this week, between now and next Tuesday, is think about these lines. Think about this poem, right? Um, what do you notice here? Um, what things can you see? What's, what, what do we get from this poem in the way that we were looking at the other? Um, so let's, uh, uh, let's read it. Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling, down along, under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, and merry-o, goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry-o. 
Old, poor old willow man, you tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Tom's going home again, water lilies bringing. Hey, come, dairy doll, can you hear me singing? There we go. Okay. Observations. I want some keen observations uh, for next time. Patterns that you see, what strikes you of interest, what's happening in this song. What do we learn about Tom Bombadil? Because we learn a great deal about Tom Bombadil from this song, right? And that, of course, is classic Tolkien. If you read the poems, and you read the poems carefully, you usually learn stuff that you're going to learn in prose later on, but you learn it first in the poem. Right, uh, he gives you all the spoilers in the poem, so we learn about we learn all that we need to know about goblins, uh, you know, in the down down to Goblin Town song before we meet and get explained about it in prose. We learn a lot about the dwarves between chip the glasses and crack the plates, uh, and their song to you know the far over the misty mountains cold song. We learn a very great deal about dwarves and what's going on before they get to explaining it in prose and us getting to learn uh, more about them and meet them. We learn a lot about the elves from the tra la la song, though lots of people don't like it. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's a fact, right? And, we see, and we've learned a lot about hobbits and about Bilbo and Bilbo's and Frodo's relationship, right, from things like the walking song and the bath song and the drinking song. Um... Here we get our introduction, right? This is this is our introductory. This is Tom Bombadil 101 that we get here in this poem. Uh, and we're going to learn more about him. We'll get it in prose later. But let's see what it is that we see in the uh, uh, um, in this initial poem, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> Julia points out we learn the color of his jacket. Yep, and we will not be allowed to forget it, right? Um, <laughs> Erika was joking about that, too. Uh, the crucial question is, what color is his jacket? Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, this is important. Um, but what does that show us, right? So what? So what? Uh, yes, he sings about the color of his clothing all the time. Why? What does it show us about him that his clothes are this color? That he sings about the color of his clothes. <laughs> Why does it come up? Um, yeah. But notice, we're not there yet. Um, he doesn't sing about the color of his clothes in this poem, right? So we'll have to wait for talking about his clothing color. Um, uh, so we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, we, um, we would not know the color of we would be left guessing the critical information about the color of his jacket uh, from this. Um, so let's uh, we'll 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 stick around next uh, next week. We'll come back and we'll look at this poem, read it carefully, think about the rhythm too and how it works. Um, what do you notice about this poem and the sound and patterns uh, of this poem? Um, so think about the form. Uh, as well, this is in a different meter, right? These, these, the Tom Bombadil poems, I think these are our first non-iambic tetrameter poems, other than the ring poem, uh, the ring verse. Um, what do we, what do we, what do we hear in this? What, what is the structure of it? And, and, and what seems interesting about that? And how does that fit with the, the content and all that? So lots and lots of questions. Um, 
So, uh, very good. All right. Uh, so we're going, it's field trip time. So let's, um, Oh no, you're in the wrong layer. That's okay. Well, it's okay. I mean, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to port anybody anyway, but um, okay. I could be the disembodied voice. Right. Right. All right. Um, so I'm going to have everybody guess where we're going tonight. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're going to go to a place I've almost we've almost never visited and where we have spent very little time recently. Uh, we're going to go back to 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 Tinadir. So I'm going to say goodbye quickly to the Twitter to f- folks who are following me on Twitter live. Uh, thanks for your participation tonight uh, and join us on Twitch uh, twitch.tv slash Signamu uh, for our Lotro field trip uh, if you would like to do that. So thanks very much. All right. So um, I have to kind of do this blindly, but if there are any hunters in the group that have a port to Evendin who would like to port the people, um, what I'd suggest is you come up on stage and then folks can either gather around you or send you tells and you can form the uh, fellowships and and port folks. Great. Um, The rest of us take courses, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay. Hey, Pine Trap is here. Excellent. Oh, good. Well, that by that name, I'm sure this must be Pine Leaves, a, a hunter of Pine Leaves. It is, indeed. Yes. So, um, uh, very good. So, we, we are going to go back to Tinnadir, of course. Um, right. In people and this who, time, try to get out of Tinnadir. Right? Yeah, that's that's the real thing, <laughs> is that tonight we're actually going to leave Tinnadir. But, I mean, come on, how exciting was that? Uh, like, we made a discovery last week. I, I'm still exhilarated with our discovery, uh, our interpretation of that, of that, of those panels. Man. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so let's, uh, so let's go Pineleaf. I think I'll, I'll follow up with you so that, uh. I can travel with you. There we go. Anybody else who needs a port to Tinnadir, or you can take the horses from Bree. So yeah, come up on the stage if you want to fellow with us. Yeah, there's a horse straight from the West Stable. Yeah, yeah. So if you have uh, if you have that open, of course I know it's a very common uh, path there. So. Brandon is pointing out how much more there is to do in Tinnadir because we we didn't do anything but the panels. Uh, true enough. And Julia, you're right. We did discuss the evil carpet as well, or the redeemed carpet, as I prefer to think of it. Um, all right. Fun watching everybody. And I can—I have to say, Falderall is a great Hobbit name. That's really—I love that. And Gilfanion, very good. Uh, bonus points for obscure Book of Lost Tales reference in the name of your character. Are you a high elf? I bet you are. Yes, you are. Uh huh. I figured.
Oh, Ethelon wants to know about uh, Mordor and plans for Mordor. Working on it. Still working on it. I'll let you guys know when we have an update. Oh, and listen, while I'm thinking of it, I... Arkenstone next week. Arkenstone, Arkenstone next week. Okay, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so, Pineleaf, can you... Uh, you're the... Oh, no, wait. I'm the lead. Shoot, I've got to invite people. Dang it. Okay, sorry. Here I am, just, like, standing around waiting for somebody else to do something I've got to do here. Okay. Um, so we'll add people to the fellowship. I should get better at doing more than one thing at a time. Okay. All right. Um, all right, who else do we need? We need Falderall. Okay. Hmm. Now, we can form a raid, but you can only travel with the people in your group, right? Is that correct? Yeah, you can only travel with the... Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think we're, we've got six right now. So we've got two other people here who need a port. Um, um, one of the hunters could just port back to Breed real quick and pick them back up again after they bring the first group, if that would work. Do we have more than one hunter? Uh, we do, but they are mostly low level. We've uh, got a level 32 and a level 24 in the party already. But that's well, if Pine would be willing to do it, he could shush back to Bree after he brings yeah. you guys. And, and, and where will that bring you? Outside the West Gate? Yeah, the Bree yeah. guide. Okay. So those of you who are not in the fellowship right now, go out to the west gate of Bree, and Pine Trap will come back and meet you there. Yeah, just outside the gate. So if you're not in the fellowship right now, go just outside the west gate of Bree, and Pine Trap can come back and meet you there. After he drops us off at Tinadir. Yeah, that'll be the easiest way to do it. Okay. All right. Hunter Uber. That's right. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Here we are. This, by the way, is one of my favorite vault keepers in the entire game. I just love this guy who has, like, set up some random treasure tables. Like, if if this doesn't look like the most secure place to keep your treasure, I don't know what, what does. You know, here's this guy. He's like, yeah, leave your gold with me. I've got it in a heap right behind me on the ground. You know, that's what I call security. There are these, like few vaults in the wall like I carved out some pieces of this not very thick wall right so these are like little lockers right that he's carved out of this of this wall and I've got a pile and I've got a bench and a little table and a pile of crates 
But I promise you that all of your worldly possessions will be completely secure. Um, yeah, love it. Anyway, okay. Uh, so like I said, this is this guy. He's uh, my favorite vault keeper to do business with. Um, so today I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna travel, and uh, we are in even dim. So you guys know what that means, right? We need to, we need to. Oh, hang on a second. Might as well open the. Uh, Stable master, while I'm here. What can I do for you? Always an important stop. Um, so let's uh, let's travel the Tinnadir way. Let's travel the Even Dim way, shall we? You know, you guys all know what I'm talking about. Time to go swimming. Yeah. So, I want to swim around the lake today, both because it's very pretty, and because I want to explore the islands. So, as you can see from the map, uh, this is Tinadir, where uh, the, where uh, Elendil's summer home was. You know, the, the sort of the private retreat house of the House of Elendil was on Tinadir. Um, again, that's not in the book. This is all stuff that they've, uh, that they've expanded, right? Stuff that they've made up. Um, as of course, um, as of course you would, right? I mean, as they have to, uh, and that's what I love about this—the the whole the, the the world building that they do with the base of what is told in the game and and or in the book—and they are so good about using every scrap that is usable in the book to inform the decisions that they make. I love it when they take um, one sentence, you know, and make it into a. Uh, a whole area, you know, a whole quest line, a whole region. Uh, it's really neat. Um, and that's essentially in part what they've done with Evendim here, right? I mean, the very fact that Enuminous, the uh, the first city of the kings, you know, was here on the lake um, and not in the military stronghold that Fornost was, right? Uh, should, so, you know, what they've done is they've created a kingdom. Well, they've created the ruins of a kingdom, Right which was a, a peaceable place, right? Which was focused on, you know, uh, was, was, was a city and a network of pleasure houses. Uh, and I, I really like the idea that um, sort of the nobles of the kingdom of Arnor, especially as the generations went on, um, and as they might have been thinking very highly of themselves, right? As it might not surprise us to hear that they came to do, uh, knowing the story of Numenor, right? Um, how you have more and more elaborate, you know, sort of like summer homes and retreat houses and, and, uh, the most important houses, um, that is the most important, uh, clans, you know, um, families, uh, in Arnor, uh, trying to, um, uh, trying to establish the, their, um, their place on the, the you know the best location the proximity to the king's family and all that kind of thing right so um you know that's uh, it it makes all kinds of sense and it's really interesting to sort of think about the the political situation in arnor uh and the way that they have conceived that and it seems to me to fit not only to fit with the kind of pattern that we see in gondor right how gondor and numenor before it right fell to decadence and we can see an inclination to decadence uh in the culture of arnor here as we see it in its ancient at the center of its ancient uh prosperity 
uh, and peace and comfort. Um, but, uh, um, but also this sort of rivalry and, uh, um, and arrogance, um, the, we know, of course, the destiny ultimately, right, of, uh, of Arnor. We know that it, um, um, it's going to split. Uh, there are going to be three rival claimants to the throne who are going to fragment the entire kingdom. This, this kingdom is doomed uh, uh, to be dissolved in civil war after only eight generations, which is, you know, a nice little bit, but, uh, you know, not, um, not all that long, right? Um, so yes, we have lots of, uh, lots of low-level folks, so please, um, be active about killing <laughs> the, the fire salamanders here. Uh, this island is full of salamanders and uh, uh, unpleasant things. So uh, for those of you who are higher level, please do uh, help to protect our, our low-level folks. Um, anyway, uh, so again, it's another really cool example of the fact that um, there's, there's, ver there's very little that we know about uh, about Arnor, right? Um, about the culture uh, and sort of political situation of Arnor. But that one thing is fragmentation, right? Um, sort of decadence, uh, rivalry, leading ultimately to division and civil war. That's what's going to happen. Um, and so they represent it in ruins only, right? Not through narrative, but just through landscape and through ruins and a little bit through the... Uh, um, uh, through deed text and quest text, so you, when you learn a little bit more information about some of the places, um, you can see, you can begin to sort of see how they're imagining that story and the development of that story from from you know the strong kingdom of the north under uh, under Elendil himself uh, uh, to uh, you know how was that changed when Velandil come you know becomes. Technically, the third king, right? Because Isildur counts, even though he was only the the king for a short time and never ruled from Arnor at all. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, you know, when Velandil comes back and he, you know, the youngest son of of Isildur, you know, the child um, who becomes king, uh, and uh, you know, after the battle of the Last Alliance and after the death of Isildur, uh, and you know, so like their king. Uh, marched off the king and the king, both of the king's son, and of course many, many, uh, oh no, all, almost all uh, of the Dúnedain who went with him, right? Because most of them were slaughtered with Isildur, who were coming back up to the north. Um, almost everybody who went to that war uh, was wiped out. So here comes Velandil, and he's the only one left, right? What happens to the society after that? How do they respond to that? Um, uh and uh, anyway, so it's just, it's, it's interesting. I find it uh, a fascinating um, uh, question to think about. And so it's fun to see, um, it's fun to see the ways in which they sort of think about and represent this. So here on this island, so this is, uh, this is Teal Ruinen. Um, and, uh, Hey, look at the panels. Right, same panels. Right now we've, now we get them. Right, so we, but we see them all over the place. Look out, salamanders incoming. These salamanders are going to one-shot some of these guys, so don't let them get that close. Uh, be proactive in salamander killing. I would recommend. Um, okay, so what is this place? 
What do we know about this place? This is one of, th well, three islands. I was about to say um, four islands, thinking of uh, uh, Tila Noon down here. Um, that one was less islandish, of course. It has that name. It's called Island, too. So it must, uh, uh, it must have been an island back in uh, Elendil's days. But of course, I'm remembering the fact that in the game story, we are to understand that the level of Lake Evendim has risen artificially uh, in uh, recent times, uh, so that during the time of, of Elendil, the waters wouldn't have been that far in you know, flooding lower Anuminus as they are. Um, so Tilanun would have been different, but we can tell from the structure that, you know, that, that high bridge that crosses out to it, um, that it was an island uh, even back in those days. So this is an island, you know, one of these, uh, one of these three uh, islands, that, you know, four islands, I guess, technically, again, um, that we can see out here in the middle. So what were these, what were these structures? Um, what do we, uh, what do we learn about this place? We can see, of course, it's, it's very characteristically a numinous architecture, right? With its light-colored stone and its dome and its, uh, pointy tower, right? And it's uh, copper or bronze panels depicting the cautionary tale of the history of Numenor. We have a paved court in the middle, right? We have... What is this building? It's a square building. Does it have a door? Where's its door? It's a big old archway, right? Leading down into the court, presumably. Is there an entrance to this building? Is it over here on this side? No. This is a blank wall. There's no door to this building. Oh, no, wait. Is this it? That's not a door. No. It's just a corner column. Huh. Well, that's interesting. This building has no door. Huh. Weird. No idea what to do with that. These walls are interesting. Now, we learn in the local quests, when you're adventuring here, that this island was not always overrun by salamanders. So, um, you know, we, we learned, okay, so there's a door, which we can't get in right now. Huh. That doesn't get you into that other building. It doesn't get you into either of those buildings. Do any of them have doors? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. we got big doors here. Right next to the, like, charred corpse of a salamander, apparently. Okay, so this has a big old set of double doors. Which, you know, you'd expect. Fine. Ah, no pictorial carvings, though. That's always disappointing. Okay. So we can get into... This is the Domey building, right? Uh, we can't get into that one. Huh. What would be the... What would it be? Uh... 
mausoleum with a subterranean entrance or something? Don't really know. Oh, yes, thank you, Ethelon, for reminding me. Yeah, the name Tilruinen is, is Cinderin for the Red Isles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's got to be underground tunnels, right? Got to be. Um, and given the prominence of the door that leads here, right around this corner, right through there in that passage there, and it goes, oh, oh yeah, we'll see, you can open it. Thank you for opening it, those of you who could open it. Because uh, there's another one that is quest-blocked, right? I think. Right, it leads immediately downstairs. And then more downstairs. And I'm now on fire, but you know that happens. Okay. And that looks all blocked. Unfinished or blocked up, maybe. But, yeah, so there might have been a passage leading through to that other building. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting. What does the, uh, the deed text say about this island? Somebody, somebody look it up. Now, now that we've looked at it. Somebody look it up. What was, what do they describe as the original purpose of this, uh, of these buildings, of this island? Okay. Uh... Ah, see, oh, nice. They make it a mystery. Well, it's indeed it's success. It's a success successfully mysterious. Um, few scholars are certain of the nature of the ruins that lie there. Nice, I like that. Uh, either a prison or a vault of some kind. General secrecy and rare mention of the place in the histories of the region. Okay. See, now that's really interesting when you think about this in the context of. Um, um, of the location, right? Of this being isolated out. Over around in here are where all of the, you know, like the summer homes and stuff are, right? Up on the mountains, over over here. This one is kind of, if you notice also, notice, notice what else this doesn't have? A view, right? Um, I mean, I guess if those trees weren't there, you would be looking... Where would you be looking? Back to Tinnadir, wouldn't you? The only place you really can look out. Again, we'd have to imagine these trees aren't there, because those trees would certainly have grown up within the last 3,000 years. Yeah, you're looking back. That's Tinnadir we're looking at, right? Yes, it is. Um, that's the main hall right there. Um, so this can be seen from Tinnadir. Tinnadir overlooks it. And it looks back to Tinnadir. But it's not set up on... Notice, you know, there's a hill right there. Right? And there is a tower up there. But most of this... Most of the ruin down here is set underneath it. It's not... It's, it certainly doesn't look like a residence. Okay. So the air of mystery. I like it. 
Oh dear, I just got a roving threat <laughs> notification. Uh, do let's avoid the roving threat, shall we? <laughs> that seems like a good idea. All right, let's uh, let's head north. Ah, Julia's wondering if maybe the uh, building could be uh, could be for the Palantir. Um, possibly. I mean, I wouldn't think that would be kept as far away as this. Um, it would be. I love that. Whoa. I meant to do is this. I love that peak up there. It's really nice. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I would think that it would be um, um, that it would be. They would they would have kept the Palantir closer to home, but um, <laughs> it was. I didn't know the kite stayed with you when you swam. That's kind of fun. There's all the swimming. The even dim experience. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I really like the. Uh, um, this is of course it, this is this is of course an inside joke for Lotro folks. The swimming, um, they uh, they they installed those boat masters so you could get quick travel across to different points in the lake. Uh, I back in the old days, of course, those didn't exist. So to get anywhere in this region, you had to swim like this across the lake, and uh, people used to call it uh, Lake Ever Swim. Uh, as a as a nickname and uh so you know fond memories i i missed that time i uh came in after those had already been um been established yeah we do have a pretty clear uh a pretty clear winner she's really who's this oh miriel man who also has a great name by the way yeah she's uh way out in front there we're not catching her <laughs> we got somebody trying to accelerate, yeah. No, no. You're not gonna catch her, man. Gilfani and she's gonna she can get there first. Um But um anyway, um I really like the quest text uh about each of these different settlements and things. Um because as they write it, they've written it as historians, because again that's the subplot, right, of the entire thing. Like even dim is this um uh is a place which is it's all about it's all about the ancient history right it's all about um the uh boy narnia is slow come on man get some swimming stamina here look at everybody pulling out ahead of you um anyway um it's all about the history right um because that's the main focus of the you know since this is not a strategic region exactly. Uh, 
you know, ta- from a, you know, like tactical standpoint, it's not, you know, that armies aren't going to pass through here to somewhere else exactly. Um, certainly not over here in the lake. Um, but this is like the cradle of Arnor, right? This is the center of the old kingdom and not just the center of like the military center at Fornost. This is the, the, the memory of Arnor, not only when it existed and was strong, but when it was beautiful and at peace. Right before it fell, before the divisions, um, uh, before the civil wars, and uh, that's uh, and 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 that's what everyone's fighting about, right? You've got the rangers who are trying to protect it, and you've got the brigands like that uh, that uh, disreputable-looking fellow who just ran in among us, um, who's just interested in looting it, right? Who are just uh, uh, trying to take all the uh, all the things they can salvage and sell or use uh, from these ruins. Um, okay. This is a much bigger set of structures and also more ruinous. Now this... Yeah, see, I was going to say, this is another place where you can see that the river has risen, right? Because this was not... This looks like a nice, convenient little inlet, right? Uh, but it wasn't. You can see from the drop-off right there, um, this was... Uh, this is paved underneath there. Oh, look, you can see the trees and the stars on the flagstones. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, so yes, you can see from these that this was, um, this was part of the building. It wasn't, uh, um, it wasn't meant for boats. But then the lake rose, and now we see that it is being used for boats. Um, the location? Can we look from here? Yeah, look at that. That's beautiful, Right? What you can see straight south here is the city of Anuminus, of course. That's, uh, Til, what's it called again? Uh, Til Anun, right? Um, the, uh, um, that's where the throne room is. So you've got, look, you've got this view of, of the, the ruling center of the kingdom. You've got over there, that's Tinadir, right? You can see the tower on Til Ruinen over that way. Um, but it is much more isolated. And again, they, they, I, I, as I said, I love the quest texts um, in uh, um, in Even Dim because they they're sort of acknowledging the um, historical interpretation of it, right? Uh, so Ethelod gave us this one again. Um, Evidence of beautiful and extensive structures, uh, but strangely devoid of mention in the histories of Arnor. And, the, and so they come up with a theory, which seems plausible, looking around, uh, that this was the home of some rich and powerful family uh, that wanted to live, in, to live in greater isolation, you know, that wanted to, uh, to be removed. But the, the positioning is nice, right? You can see Anuman, you can see the centers of power, both Tinadir uh, and... Uh, uh, Tilanoon down there. Um, so yeah, kind of hard to see what this would be when totally finished. This was a courtyard, an entry courtyard, like you would have walked in through this. 
rather than swimming up to it, right? Okay. Look at that, somebody's, somebody's tower up on the hill there. Is this a watchtower? I think that is a watchtower. I think that's not a manor up there. But anyway, let's go visit one more place, and then we'll be done for this evening. Hang on, we got some more, uh, some more grave robbers. What are they called here? Tomb robbers, right? Not grave robbers. They're tomb robbers. Okay, let's um, let's go to the Eve Spires. So we have these impressive mountain ranges, right? Notice we've got the big mountains up to the north here. Uh, so the the land the land rises fairly steeply all around this side of the lake. Um, and uh, we have this camp over here in the. Uh, right underneath these cliffs and hills that rise up around here. And of course, again, if you do the adventures here in Evendim, you get sent here a lot. There are several quests that bring you through here. And this is one of the places where we see sort of the other interests. The majority of the Evendim region is dominated by humans, dominated by the uh, rangers, you know, the Numenorean Preservation Society versus the Cutthroat Tomb Robber Society. Um, but then here we get an encampment uh, of elves... We are fading. Middle-earth is failing. I will sail into the west. That's a dead giveaway, right? And, of course, Longbow. An ant! So there's an ant and a few elves in this camp. Um, and it's fun that, you know, Longbow the ant will get you, uh, uh, you, you get a bunch of different quests from Longbow. He's concerned about the state of the uh, the region around here. Um, so uh, that's uh, it's a lot of fun to meet Longbow the Ent. Um, but basically, so here we get some insight, you know, through these people and our interactions with these people, we get some insight into the non-Numenorean elements of Evendim, right? Um, that is just the land and the lake itself. And of course, there's, you know, sort of struggle for the lake that's going, a struggle for the land around. There are giants that live up in the hills not far from here, stone giants. Um, there are, uh, uh, there's something wrong with the animals. And of course, we have, sorry, that ugly thing is a good guy. Um, uh, we have these other, these other guys. Let's see if I can get a look at them. What can I do for you? You can spare us lots of swimming, which is very kind of you. So if 
we cross up here and find some of these guys here. Not the bears. Not the wolves. Don't kill this guy up here. You can kill the bear and the wolf. And the crawler. But don't kill this guy for a second. Let me approach him first. Look at this guy. They are called the Gauradine. Singular Gauradon. Right? And as you can see, he's wearing a wolf pelt. He's going to attack you anyway. Wearing lots of wolf hair. Right? You know, wolf fur, boots and leggings, and an entire wolf pelt on his back. Right? Tail included. So that the tail hangs down between his legs and the back, and the head is on his head. Right? Um, yeah, good. It's okay. You can, you can kill him. I don't want him to come after our newbies. Right? Um, I love the Garadine, I have to say, from a lore standpoint. Um, so the idea is that these guys are encroaching from the north, because, of course, just north of Evendim, to sort of go out from just north of Evendim, we're on the border, as you can see, we're way up here on the northern edge, um, just south of Forakel. Um, and the Gauradine are, you know, some of the, the bad guys here, right, from Forakel. Um, but I love, what I love about the Garadine is that this is another, one of many examples of the Lotro folks not only reading the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit very carefully, as they always do, um, but of bringing in elements from Tolkien's other books, um, even though things like, you know, of course, like they can't officially adapt the stories from any of like the Book of Unfin of like the, the uh, Book of Lost Tales or Unfinished Tales or the Silmarillion, right? Uh, they can't officially tell those stories because they're, um, you know, they're not, they, they don't have the license for those. They have the license for the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, and which of course includes the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. But um, they, uh, uh, they often still will work in ideas and even references to those other works and those other stories um, in really cool and legal ways by making parallels, right, and bringing things out. So the Gauradine are a really neat example of this. Um, the Gauradine, the Wolfmen, that's a concept that's used in, uh, uh, in the Children of Hurin. If you've read the, the, the novel version of the Children of Hurin, um, it's not in the published Silmarillion, not really in the published Silmarillion, not much in the published Silmarillion, but the, um, the outlaws, the outlaws that Turin Turambar uh, hooks up with after he flees from Doriath. Um, uh, this, again, as I say, this comes out more in the longer version. So if you read the longer version that you can find in Unfinished Tales, uh, or in the in the long novelized version with the beautiful Alan Lee uh, illustrations, um, you can see the um, uh, the 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 references to it, and they call the the people like the woodmen, uh, the sort of civilized folk who live in this region. They call these outlaws Gauradine, um, wolfmen, not because they actually like do anything with wolves, but because they're like wolves. They're comparing them to wolves. Um, they are outlaws, and they run in packs, and they're dangerous, and they'll hunt you down and catch you uh, if they find you wandering out, and they'll come and raid your uh, your farm and stuff like wolves do. Um, so, uh, 
so so yeah so they're called the garodine they're called the they're called the the, the, the wolfmen again it's just an it's just a metaphor right uh, when they're called that so the lotro folks take that concept and they're like wolfmen okay hey so uh, so they create a race of wolfmen right you know uh, of of people who actually use wolves as totem creatures uh, and you know and it fits in really well with the culture up there uh, among the Lossoth in uh, um, uh, up there in 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 Forakel. Uh, and of course, it makes perfect sense that they would be the bad guys, right? That they would, you know, because they are the lawless, um, uh, the, you know, the, the 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 lawless, wicked men on the outskirts, uh, who uh, uh, you know, who come in and 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 harass the uh, the good, hardworking folks. Um, but again, I love the way that that's been reconceptualized. Just that one phrase, that one metaphor taken and literalized, I think is re- it's, it's a very, very clever idea. Um, and like I said, totally legal, but um, uh, but but really cool. So yeah, so they're kind of encroaching. They they've been moving, uh, they've been moving down. Um, and uh, if we can see, well, okay, all right. So let's let's go. I'm gonna I'm gonna mount up. Um, but you guys can come up with me. Um, and, uh, well, actually, hang on. Now, if everybody mounts up, actually, that's a bad idea because they'll attack and, and kill folks. Um, so let's, uh, let's run up so that those of you who are higher levels can clear the path here to make sure that none of our, our, uh, low-level folks get killed on the way. Um... Let's go up and we'll look at one of their settlements. See a little bit more about Garadine culture here. Yes, and uh, thanks again for the uh, uh, for the text there. Um, uh, that the the Garadine within the story uh, in Lotro is uh, that they were they were servants of the Witch King. Um, you know, so they were. They were corrupted in that way. Am I, am I going the right way? I think I'm going the right way, right? We'll find their their settlement up here, as I recall. It's a bit of a hike. I don't think... Sorry, it all looks different to me. Because I haven't been up here since they did the cosmetic shift in this region. Like, this moss was totally not here before. So yeah, I'm. Uh, it looks so much cooler than it used to look. Oops, I can't get up that slope there. Gotta get around to the rocks here. Oh dear. There we go. Um, but yeah, it's disorienting because the countryside looked totally different the last time I was here. For those of you who are new to the game, um, uh, these old, you know, the game's almost ten years old now. And uh, these regions that they built a long time ago, uh, the graphics were a lot simpler and, and less decorative. Uh, so they went back and uh, put in a lot of the new sort of foliage and flowers and just made the terrain look more kind of up to date to fit with the rest of the game. Um, 
and uh, and it's beautiful. I love the changes. Uh, but when I come back to a region which I haven't adventured in in several years, it was before that cosmetic change to the landscape. And now uh, it's hard for me to find my way around. Okay, so as you can see, uh, like we have literal totems, right? And these are all wolf skulls, right? So they've got lots of wolf skulls. And what looks like blood. There's an interesting contrast. Uh, ooh, I love the wolf heads at the top. Right, so we got the wolf skulls, and then we get these carven wolf heads with the blood coming, uh, sort of dripping off of them. Right? I love that. That's really cool. I don't think I ever really looked at that closely before. Um, uh, but that's neat. So that instead of just having like a, you know, the, the book that it branches out into these uh, uh, really dynamically shaped wolf heads as if they're in mid pounce already with blood dripping and and uh, and uh, sort of streaming back from their mouths, right? Uh, that's really neat. Um, but you see, they're really simple stuff. Just look at these banners, just sort of rags there. No designs at all. Very simple uh, tents, which are obviously skins. Now, you can tell they're from the north, right? Because their their tents are not canvas. They're made of they're made of thick hides. Those are clearly warm tents. And then we have... What do we have over here? <laughs> you know, sorry, the fungus there. From a distance, I thought those were steps. So I was going to say... Well, what is this, like a Garrodine pulpit? You know, you like mount the steps up to the pulpit and, and preach from here. Um, as this certainly looks like a, a sort of a central shrine. Oh, neat. Look at that. Yeah, see the top of this one? How you've got the... This, this one has a central wolf head, and it's not just a head. You can see the whole body, right? Here's the, uh, here's the, 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 the forepaws of the wolf. And then the, the sort of the glowing teeth in the head. There's, there's a... There's actually fire inside there, isn't there? Making it glow. Yeah, you can see it flickering in there. That is super cool. This is a really neat wolf shrine. So you can see that they're not totally unsophisticated, because look at how it's carved down here. Right? I mean, not only is this a really awesome representation of a wolf, um, you know, really neat, but uh, but the way that it's stylized down here and carving, again, it's not just a... Um, you know, we see in other places, um, as for instance, uh, you know, on Friday afternoons, Grifflet has been down in Enidwyth for a while, uh, and when you see the totems uh, of the uh, of the different Dunlending clans, those are often made just out of trees. So you've got the whole the tree, the whole stump and the root system, and then the top of it, you know, then lopped off and the top of it carved out into the head of the, you know, the dragon or the ox or whatever uh, that is the the totem of their clan. But that's not the case. This is constructed all the way down, right? Yeah, I don't think that's a tree at all. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's, there's more kind of artifice there. They're not just carving into trees. They're, uh, um, they're doing something much more elaborate there. Thank you. Thank you for keeping up with the mobs there. Anyway, cool. Cool, neat stuff. I, I love it up here. And then let's let's look back from 
from here if we look back down to the south we get no we get trees hang on let's go over this way back to the opening here uh oh no more tomb robbers okay so these falls is where the river comes down right into the northern part of the lake all right and that is till ruinin right no no that's oh sorry i'm forgetting the name of it already what was it called uh rantost yeah yeah that's rantost the northernmost island there so i see we're so far away all the way across the lake here we're so far away from uh anuminous that you can't even see it anymore no wait that's rantost right there that actually is till ruinin then yeah yeah, that is Till Ruin, and that's Rantost there. Trying to get my bearings. I want to confirm that that's correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, you can see that clearly now. That's Rantost. So that's Till Ruin in there. Can we see Tinnadir from up here? If we get around the corner? Not sure we can from here. Is that it over there? We're just seeing those towers peeking out, or is that something else? Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's Tinnadir down there, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, from where I'm pointing, Rantost and then Tinnadir should be just in my line of sight. So yeah, yeah, so there's Tinnadir there. Cool. So that means that Numinous would be to this just to the south down there neat cool okay awesome so that's lake even dim uh lake Ninuiel. um okay so uh next week we're gonna do tom bombadil's song and maybe we'll get so far as up to his house which would be fun um uh, so maybe we'll go back to the old forest. Maybe we'll wait one more week and explore a little bit more up here in Even Dim and maybe go up to Forakel. Who knows? Um, but uh, we're going to end here tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, that was that was a super fun close analysis of the first Tom Bombadil poem, uh, which I've never looked at that carefully before. So I, I was excited to do that with you guys. Uh, thanks for helping me discover lots of fun things tonight in our explorations. Uh, and I look forward to meeting with you guys again next week. Bye now.